Hey guys, thank you so much for being back at Changing the System and thank you for your great feedback on episode one on the fashion industry that gave me a lot of confidence to actually carry on with this project. So we're moving on with a very different subject and that is a two-part mini-series on drug policy. On the first episode, the one you're listening to right now, we're talking about drug policy and racism. I mean, we all know it, right? Drug policy has been used as a tool to oppress black and brown people, to stigmatize and mass incarcerate. And it's still going on today. In the last six years in the UK, arrests for drug usage has halved for white people, but stayed the exact same for black British people. But meanwhile, there is a movement going on that is researching the therapeutic usage of some drugs, like MDMA therapy or psychedelic therapy. Ayahuasca, big one. But it feels so hypocritical to jump on this whole medicinal drug use wave while black and brown people are still being prosecuted and criminalized for drug-related issues. So I would love to introduce you to someone who can tell us so much about this correlation from a real overarching and holistic perspective. And that is my guest, Camille Barton. Camille is a lot of things. Grew up in London, lived in Oakland and in Holland, so speaks a bit of Dutch, but now lives in Berlin. They're an artist and a big voice in the anti-racist movement and one of the advocates for medicinal usage of psychedelic drugs and MDMA and marijuana. Camille believes that this new form of therapy can be promising for black people and minority groups in particular who've been carrying around trauma for generations. But it's not an easy conversation, so please stay tuned to hear more about this, drug policy, racial justice, and the forces that make this so tough. So how did you get inspired by the drugs movement? I think it wasn't a deliberate choice that I made. I just sort of stumbled into it, or it kind of stumbled upon me. I spent a lot of my younger years going to music festivals, and I came across Rick Doblin at Burning Man in 2012. Oh, just for reference, uh, Rick Dublin is the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. And he was doing a talk about MAPS and the work they're doing around MDMA psychotherapy and clinical research that was happening. And I just, yeah, found it so exciting. I had no idea anything like that was taking place. Um, so that was the, kind of the first seed that was planted. And later on, I ended up moving to the Bay Area near San Francisco in 2014. I moved over there. And so found myself again kind of in the midst of many people working in the psychedelic research sphere, doing drug policy reform. And I became aware that the war on drugs was just this incredibly detrimental force um, and causing huge cycles of violence uh, for many, many people predominantly african-american communities um and at the time when i was living over there i was working as a youth worker in west oakland with um, youth that had predominantly been in juvenile detention facilities either in connection with drug policies or many of them had lost parents through the drug war and so i really saw in working with them just how much violence was kind of clouding their lives because of these policies and because of these punitive um prohibitive drug measures. Mm. So yeah, I I realized that if 
if we really want to solve racism in its kind of current incarnation, definitely in the US context, and the war on drugs and drug policy needs to be something that's addressed. Um, and the more I started to kind of look into this and explore this, um, the more parallels I could see in the UK and around the world. And with the kind of link to psychedelic research, the more I started getting interested in these areas and noticing the types of people who were able to access the conversation, access the research studies, and actually participate in the healing, um, were not these demographics, were not the people that were actually being impacted and targeted by the war on drugs. So it felt important to me to start talking about that, advocating for African-American communities and other communities who've been really targeted by these policies to actually benefit from psychedelic medicines and, and get that healing. Yeah, well, that's interesting because the narrative we hear is that drugs are the cause of many problems that are, you know, uh, happening in minority communities. Mm. But you're trying to flip the script and say, no, it actually can open doors. How do you see that? It's interesting to me that we have so much stigma and shame about drugs in our communities because we, we've kind of been pumped full of this message that, you know, we are criminals, that we are kind of creating these kind of undercurrents of crime. And a lot of people, I think, end up internalizing these stereotypes and these messages without understanding how much social control is kind of connected to drugs and the way that drug policies have always been connected to targeting and stigmatizing certain races of people. So in the US context, the first group this really happened to were Chinese folks who were building the railroads in the early 20th century. And they, at the time, were consuming lots of opium. Opium was legal. Uh, many white people were using opium as well in the US. And they couldn't criminalize Chinese people ostensibly for being Chinese. But by criminalizing opium, it gave a green light to essentially incarcerate huge amounts of these people who, at the time, were kind of threatening to elites in power who could see them building the railroads, developing communities, and becoming prosperous. And we see this criminalization happen later on down the line with Latino communities who were associated with smoking marijuana, and later on in the 80s as well with African-American communities and crack cocaine. So I think that whenever these substances have been criminalized and policed, there's generally been a, an ethnic group or multiple ethnic groups attached to them. And because of that and the ways that these policies have decimated our communities meant that lots of people have ended up in prison and had their families broken up, we haven't necessarily had many conversations about the root causes of this because there's so much shame around mm -hmm. it. And because of that shame, I think there's a lot of work to do, trust building to do. What I realize in trying to do this work is it's not enough to just say, hey, psychedelics are really healing, you should take them, because that ignores the last, you know, 50 plus years of the drug war and the destruction and ongoing kind of racial trauma that has, that has come from those policies. So I think there's a lot that needs to be acknowledged in that if we want to um, create space for these communities really to benefit and access psychedelic medicines. It's so interesting. One thing I would really like to hear from you is, because I've seen your talks on, on YouTube, about how psychedelics can heal trauma, especially, you know, with African-American people or marginalized people. How, what's the correlation between that? Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing in the studies that MAPS are doing with MDMA psychotherapy, looking at other psychedelics for healing, is that they are really effective at treating post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, 
um, and other things associated with hypervigilance. In the piece that I wrote for the MAPS Bulletin, I referenced a study that kind of was demonstrating that African-American communities in Baltimore have higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder than veterans returning from war. I haven't been able to access similar studies in the UK, but it would not surprise me if Afro-Caribbean communities also have higher rates of PTSD. We definitely know that in the UK there's an epidemic with schizophrenia and black men in particular. Study that Lambeth Council did, I think in 2014, showed that black men were 17 times more likely to have a schizophrenia diagnosis than their white counterparts. There's different hypotheses for this, but a lot of evidence does have show a correlation between police violence, police harassment, and the onset of schizophrenia. So we're aware that, that trauma is rife in communities and populations in the UK um, and other parts of the world, and this has many different effects on the body and is essentially trauma. We don't currently have great mental health services or provisions for people of colour in this country. A lot of therapists and mental health providers don't really acknowledge that racism is a cause or is a, is a contributing factor to mental ill health or kind of embodied trauma. So I think in seeing that in the studies, this is, these medicines are so effective at treating PTSD, it seems like a useful avenue to explore to try and address the traumas of racism, which compound not only in our lifetimes, but generationally as well many of us so I think that there's more work that needs to be done to tailor it in such a way to create a safe container to really explore the issues and I'm interested in, in doing more of that work but I think these these substances show a lot of promise in doing that also because many indigenous communities around the world have had historical use of psychedelics and plant medicines for kind of healing ailments spiritual emotional physical but also connecting to ancestors and and the earth. So I think that in returning to these medicines, this will hopefully help us to process a lot of the, the traumas that have been at play in the last few hundred years. There needs to be specific policies put in place to really ensure the profit from these drugs and substances once they're legal or decriminalised can actually benefit these communities. So we're seeing this work with varying degrees of success in the US. So in California, they've actually implemented certain measures to make sure that those communities who have been harmed by the war on drugs actually have first preference priority to get into the market, to get licenses to become cannabis sellers, growers, distributors. And in this way, yeah, they're trying to use that as a way to repair. You're now tuned in to you, you call drugs medicines. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about that. <laughs> um... I think that drug, the term drug is kind of uh, a bit of a false one because, I mean, technically food, foods are drugs, sugar is a drug, alcohol, alcohol is one of the most harmful drugs to the body and yet it's legal. So we have these stigmas and associations when we hear that word, but in terms of chemically what's happening in the body, it also can apply to food, can apply to so many different things that we interact with. So I like to call them medicines in referring to substances and plants that can have a therapeutic and healing effect on the body, especially those that have been traditionally used by communities for... Do you think it works for everyone? No. <laughs> <laughs> I 
the ambulance is coming to the rescue. <laughs> commercialization something you're worried about? I mean, it's already happening, to be honest. It's it's interesting to me, there's the very little civil society conversation about, about this. I know that psychedelics are becoming more mainstream, but considering how, how much corporate capture there has been of these products already, there's very little conversation about that. How we, I guess, adjust and protect the rights that we want to have in relation to these medicines and substances. So, for example, mm -hmm. Johnson & Johnson, who produce Vaseline, mm -hmm. they have the patent for the ketamine nasal spray. Um, what? Which is now readily available in the US. It's really great for suicidal ideation, um, anxiety, and some other ailments. So, you know, there's various things happening with Ibogaine and bigger corporations, psilocybin. So all these patents are happening. The corporations are very much mobilized and ready to take charge of the market. So I think what we really need is more civil society conversation about how we create policies that allow, first and foremost, indigenous communities who still have an ongoing relationship with these plant teachers to have access to them, to have access to grow them and, and have that be sustainably cultivated. And secondly, to yeah create business models that, that allow those who have been harmed by the war on drugs to actually either be employed in those companies to economically benefit in some way. We just, there's a lot of conversations that need to be had so that yeah. this can be done well. It's, it's, and I think it's a good, good opportunity for the communities that have been doing amazing work in trying to advocate for legalization, for decriminalization of psychedelics to become a little bit more nuanced in the conversation because, you know, we are headed down that road. It is happening. So now it's more about how do we allow this to go well? How do we allow there to be regulations and policies in place that give us as consumers more agency rather than just legalize it by any means necessary? I don't think that that perspective or that push is actually, gonna, um, it's already happening. Within the next 10 years, there will be a lot of change in this arena. So it's about how do we get things in place now so this really serves. Yeah, um, and where do we need people. to go? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I'm totally honest with you. I'm excited to vision that more with colleagues and friends who who are committed to this work. And that's something I, I want to do more of this year is really vision and dream my kind of ideal scenarios because I feel very aware of the dystopian elements, very aware of the scary aspects with corporations and corporate capture. I can vision those things very easily. What I need to do more work on is to actually dream up and vision the utopian ideals and then try and take steps towards that. Oh yeah, you were also on your way to becoming a qualified therapist yourself. Hmm. Yeah, slowly, slowly. I've been really lucky to participate in the MAPS MDMA psychotherapy training. I'm yeah, hopeful that one day I will be qualified to yeah, yeah sit therapist people with that yeah. medicine. Um, the kind of next stage for me, though, is to continue my somatics education. And so I'm probably going to be doing a master's in dance and somatic wellness to become, yeah, an ISMETA registered somatic practitioner and continue down that path because mm. I'm really interested in therapy broadly, but particularly therapies that really work with the body 
Do you think it's a coincidence that in this day and age, you know, it's becoming more popular or people are seeking for, mm. for things like that? I think that there's so much shifting in the world right now. Mm. We're kind of in an age of, I don't want to say collapse in a, in a negative sense, but, but yeah, I think the systems that we've been living under are collapsing, they're changing, um, and we're having to learn new ways of being uh, more sustainable. For me personally, when I need to learn something new, it really helps me to understand what's come before. And I think that's what a lot of people are doing, is really trying to understand what's come before so we can actually move forward in a more sustainable way. Mm. Learning about ancestors, understanding different processes that have worked and been effective for healing, I think will inform the kind of changes that we need. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a a positive thing. I also hope that people can be holistic with it and really think about the repairing of harms and not just the joyous, light, irreverent things, but really understanding how we give reciprocity, how we show care, um, particularly to indigenous communities that have been holding this medicine and these practices and making sure that we don't just continue consuming and extracting in this very colonial way that Western people have been used to doing for quite a long time now. Um, and I do see this with us in ayahuasca tourism or many mm -hmm. other capacities that Western people are very comfortable to go to indigenous communities, take their knowledge, take their medicines, and then not show much care around, you know, whether these communities are even going to have the right to live on their on their sacred lands anymore. And the battles they're having with oil companies, you know, even in Brazil alone, the kind of ongoing genocide of indigenous communities is so mm -hmm. so loud right now. Yeah. And yet I don't necessarily see the solidarity mm -mm. with the seekers who are very happy to go and take this medicine aren't necessarily willing to really give back in a in a concrete way so I hope that that can happen more yeah understanding more about colonization because I don't know <laughs> maybe a little <laughs> bit obsessed with, about it no but, but it just, that's where actually I wanted to get to you know yeah. yeah I think it's so much is coming from colonization so much yeah there's an amazing map that this doctor called Rupa Mariah has which which kind of has colonization at the top and then all the web of things that have come from it, like different forms of supremacism, whether that's white supremacy, male supremacy, human supremacy over animals, the way that links to ecocide, the way that links to genocide. It's like, it's such a connected web and has massively shaped the world that we currently exist in. And so for me, in thinking about wanting to create social change, system change, it seems super important to understand what this process of colonization has been, how it continues to impact things now, so that we really know if the choices we make are reproducing that or actually countering that. So I think whether it is around patriarchy and sexism, racism, drug policy, there's so many overlaps that just learning about colonization as a process is a really useful way to understand this map, to sort of decode and understand how we move forward. I want to talk about the UK a bit more as well. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to drug laws and drug policies, you know, there's been many talks about the stop and search mm -hmm. uh, policies recently. I think 
for every one white person being stopped in search, there's nine, nine black people. So to me, it sounds like we're still far away from mm -hmm. you know justice in the UK. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, very much so. I think there's an issue of people really pointing the finger at the United States of America and saying, like, that's where racism is, that's where the war on drugs is operating, you know, it's all over there, without understanding the parallels in the UK and actually how similar a lot of things are. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, the Lamy Review came out, and uh, David Lamy conducted kind of doing an, a review of the criminal justice system. And within that, amongst other things, the report found that in England and Wales, we actually incarcerate a higher percentage of our black population than the US does, which a lot of UK people are very surprised by because we like to think we don't have a race problem here. But the, the figures show that that's not the case. There are definitely things to look at. Again, Release have amazing data on the last two reports they've produced showing similar stats that you've mentioned around stop and search, but also that white communities do nearly double the amount of recreational drugs than black communities, and yet it's predominantly Afro-Caribbean people that are being stopped and searched on suspicion of cannabis possession. Not even dealing other drugs, just possession of cannabis. Whereas we see that in lots of areas like Bristol, there's so much recreational drug use that the police have stopped trying to enforce it, enforce kind of policing around personal possession for white communities. <laughs> but for black and brown communities, the rates have actually increased for stop and search. So we see that there's kind of two different approaches happening. If you happen to be white and predominantly middle class in this country, you unofficially have a license to use and consume drugs and to not really be criminalized for this. But if you are not white, and it's a very different story. Everything that's been happening as well in the UK, particularly London around knife crime, the conversations around that has created a lot of confusion for people because having a lot of fear around knife crime, and it's not so this isn't an issue, it is an issue, but having a lot of fear and misinformation about it means that it creates more of a remit for police to be tougher, to be stopping and searching black boys more without really understanding that there, is, there are harm reduction approaches that could be implemented which would deal with that mm. without creating more stigma and criminalisation. So in Glasgow, where they, in 2005, had really, really high murder rates from knife crime, they took a public health approach. And so they invested in youth centres, they invested in counselling provisions, they invested in things that would really get to the root of why those kids on the streets were doing that to each other. But what have we had in London? Oh, just more conversations around policing and the kind of shaming and criminalising of these of these folks there's a lot of confusion there's a lot of stigma mm. and as long as there is a fear this kind of racialized fear of black boys being dangerous being criminals being thugs that will always fuel more drug prohibition and more policies that advocate for them being stopped and searched that advocate for them to be harassed by the police because we're kind of nationally feeding this myth about the dangerous ethnic other without understanding the realities of where this comes from and understanding what would need to be in place to heal things that are actually going on. Yeah, and especially what you're saying about demand is higher among white people mm -hmm. and the usage is higher among white people. Yeah. So that's yeah, a crazy statistic to me. Because yeah. every reference we see, if it's a drug dealer on television or you know, all these shows like Cops, which I guess we do have some UK equivalents of, who do you see getting arrested? It's always migrant background people, black and brown people. So we're really being sold this idea that these are the people who are running the crime syndicates. 
in reality, the people who are really making money off drugs and big drug trafficking, again, tend to be white folks. And we see that in the data. So there's a lot of, of kind of myth busting to do, I think, and like public perceptions to shift. Yeah. Yeah. What could be a new narrative? Um, I think in thinking about reparation, really, from, from this whole process, I would love to see black people getting into the ancillary cannabis market. I would love to see loads of black CBD shops opening, people preparing for a legal cannabis market and being able to get into it, being able to use that resource to build the infrastructure that we want in our communities, whether that's new schools, social centers, arts and creative practices, but really being able to economically support each other through this revenue, which feels like something that would be a measure of fairness after the destruction that has been caused by these prohibitionist policies. Have you seen people in your own environment or friend groups or that have been, you know, victim of the war on drugs? Yeah, I mean, more people than I can count. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. My brother being one of them. Yeah, it's really common. If you're black, basically, you're going to have someone who's experienced. Mm. Yeah, mm. so it's really then, you know, it's not some far off or abstract subject. It's something that really hits home. Yeah, it's very personal. Okay, so that mm. makes me understand a bit more than why you are so active in this movement then as well. Because mm. I, I, it doesn't, it does, it's not something you just choose out of a list of subjects like, oh, this mm. is what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. I really didn't, honestly, really didn't choose it. It kind of just, it just keeps on happening. <laughs> I suppose I choose it in the sense that I'm not saying no because the universe is like seems to be shimmying me towards these things and these opportunities come and I'm like okay I guess this is what I'm meant to be doing mm. I'm grateful for it you know it's an amazing the people I meet doing this work are just incredible really incredible so I'm grateful for it but it's funny because it really was not was not a conscious decision it just it's just kind of emerged yeah you're the chosen you're the chosen chosen voice <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I mean, thank you for being that. Mm. Wow, yeah, I was a bit lost for words at the end of this, as you can probably tell. And I really want to thank Camille Barton for opening up to me, for sharing all their experience and knowledge with us. So I encourage you to follow their work on the website camillebarton.co.uk You can also follow Release UK's latest research on racist drug policy in the UK and MAPS if you're into the latest science on psychedelic therapy, MDMA therapy and that kind of stuff. I'll collect all the resources on my website as well, changingthesystempodcast.com. So no need to feel like you've missed anything. So please get involved if you want to make drug policy anti-racist. As I said, the next episode will also be on drugs, but from a more substance-based perspective, with the super smart journalist and drugs advocate Thijs Roos. Thijs and I will talk about the future of legalizing all drugs and what that could mean in our society, how drug policy is culture policy, and how we're conditioned to believe that some drugs are bad, others are good, and where this comes from. 
So now I have to say the mandatory like, subscribe, follow Changing the System on wherever you listen to your podcast. And of course, a very genuine thank you to Yoon McAllis for smoothing out the audio, Ian Blue for the music, and Chad Abauma, the designer, for helping me out last minute to get this together. Thank you and see you next time. <laughs>